0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Jeff Miller. I'm head
1: of public affairs at the lab, and I will be your host for this evening. Now, we have a few special things planned. Uh, There will, will be a voting segment at the conclusion of all the presentations in which we will ask you to vote for the question you think science should answer first. We'll also have all the science presenters up here on stage in a Q&A session. Uh, there are mics, two on this level and two up above, so you'll have a chance to ask them questions. And then those of you who might not be members of Friends of Berkeley Lab yet, and you picked up one of these, there is a spot where you can join. If you do join, you will be eligible, I wonder what that was, you will be eligible to, uh, for a special lab tour uh, that we will also make available to existing members if you go online next week. So that's another advantage of joining tonight. We hope you will do so. So since this is a night of questions, the first question will be from me to you, which is how many of you are here for the very first time? Please raise your hands. Great, thank you so much for coming. A reminder, we will be in Oakland at the Kaiser Theater on April 29th with five different questions. We hope you can attend that one as well. Now, we're gonna kick off the evening by showing the new Berkeley Lab video, which is short by design, just a minute and 45 seconds. We hope you enjoy it, and then I'll be back on stage in just a second. Thank you.
2: Is it possible to make fuels from sunlight? Can we stop breast cancer in its tracks? Save consumers billions of dollars in energy costs? At Berkeley Lab, finding answers to the toughest questions is why we come to work every day. Our science paved the way for medical imaging devices like MRI machines and PET scanners. We added 16 elements on the periodic table, helped develop energy-saving windows, discovered the accelerating universe, and won 13 Nobel Prizes. Scientists from around the globe use our powerful supercomputers to do everything from develop new materials to predict the Earth's climate. We're working to create affordable batteries that enable electric vehicles to go 300 miles on a single charge. Berkeley Lab scientists have even created a solar-powered vaccine refrigerator, that could help save countless lives in the developing world. Public service has been part of our DNA for more than 80 years. As a Department of Energy National Laboratory, our science is open, ingenious, and humanitarian. It is done for you and belongs to you. The challenges now facing us in energy, health, and the environment won't wait. Neither will we. Our science, your science, will lead us to solutions we can't even imagine. Berkeley Lab, bringing science solutions to the world.
1: You can apply. You can apply. So, the video started with questions, uh, you know, can you make fuel some sunlight, uh, stop breast cancer in its tracks, That was not done by chance. Questions drive science and questions that provoke other questions keep science alive. In fact, if you think about the word question, you think about the root, quest, it's about a momentum, it's about a journey, it's about a zest for answers that scientists and science uh, uses to keep moving forward. So what is the objective of all of those questions? Well, sometimes it's just understanding, sometimes it's a new technology, Sometimes it's just to satisfy curiosity, but there are as many questions as there are answers and as many answers as there are questions. And at Berkeley Lab, questions are our brain food that fuel the discoveries that we really believe serve the public interest. Now, we admit that sometimes the questions can seem a little esoteric, like some on tonight's program, but it's our responsibility to convince you otherwise. And that will not be up to me. That will be up to our panel of scientists presenters, which include David Schlegel talking about dark energy, a very popular topic. Some of you are here to hear about, I'm sure. Yes, I know, it has many fans. Dark energy has many fans. Uh, Mei Zhang, we talking about electron microscopy, which you might not think you need to know about, but you really do. Marcus Lehman on ocean wave energy. Laura Kippers on the forest and climate. And Wim Lehman's on tabletop accelerators. <laughs> Would he bring his family? <laughs> okay. God. Wim, really. Remember to listen carefully because you'll be asked to vote on which of the questions science should answer first. So to start the evening officially, I now welcome to the stage David Schlegel. And his question is going to be, is learning about dark energy going to get us anywhere? David, take it away. Please (laughs) welcome
3: Okay, good evening. Um, I'm going to tell you about dark energy this evening. And for anyone who's my age or older, so (laughs) 30-ish... when we were in school, this is not something we learned about in our textbooks. But now the textbooks have to include this. So if this is something you haven't learned about, uh, pay attention. Because what this is, this is really fundamental understanding um, in the world of physics that, that is new. So there really is groundbreaking fundamental physics that we're learning today. Um, so it's, it's really an exciting time for us. Uh, the discovery of dark energy, so has was made... Um, Um, by two teams, one of them at Berkeley Lab in 1998. So this is 17 years ago. And the discovery was just... It just seemed like a little thing. What it was was it was looking at exploding stars halfway across the universe. So these are supernova explosions um, that were just a little bit too faint. They were just fainter than we thought they should be. And you might want to write that off as a curiosity. On the other hand, these people who then won the Nobel Prize because they were smart enough to figure out that, oh, this is important. When you have these little pieces that don't fit, um, that's your clue. Those are the problems that you really want to be picking away at because that's telling you there's something in the laws of nature as we understand them that are not right or not complete. And so this was one of those. Okay, and then the interpretation of this was that there's actually too much space Between us and these distant objects, so in fact, we actually needed to say the only interpretation that worked was to say that there is more universe between us and these distant supernovae, and so this has changed what we view as the geometry of the whole universe. Um, So we we know that it started in a Big Bang, very bright explosion. Don't look directly at it. (laughs) (laughs) Then the universe was accelerating. And in fact, this acceleration, or or it was expanding, and this expansion has been accelerating. So the universe is not only getting larger every year, but it's getting larger by a greater amount every year. And the cause of this is what we term dark energy. OK. So this effect, it's actually seen in any maps that we make of the universe. The initial discovery was with these exploding stars halfway across the universe. And since then, we've made many more maps of the distant universe and the nearby universe. And what we do is we make these maps and we try to make them agree with our understanding of physics. Um, And fortunately, there are some features in uh, this is a a map of galaxies where each point in here is a different galaxy. This is actually, I, I have to admit, this is actually, this is an artist. Um, rendition. This isn't a real map. I'll show you a real map. I'll get there. Um, But I want to show this because I don't know if your eye can pick out there are some um, kind of circular-like features in these maps. And the universe really has these. It has these uh, giant sound wave echoes from the early universe that have imprinted um, everywhere in the distribution of galaxies. We can see these. They're large, so they're Okay, the scale here is 450 million light-years. So even for an astronomer, that's actually pretty big. Um, and one of the things that we can do, it's a pretty simple geometrical test, is that we, we know these are sound waves imprinted on the universe, and they should be spherical. Now, if we didn't have something like dark energy um, accelerating the universe, then these don't look spherical. They actually look squashed. And what we have to do is we have to put in dark energy to make the geometry fit. And once we do that, um, then these maps make sense. But without dark energy, these maps don't make sense at all. Okay, So the largest maps that we've made to date, they're from this telescope in New Mexico. So this is the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Um, so this is a telescope where, at Berkeley Lab, we rebuilt um, the instruments uh, six years ago to make the largest map of the universe. Uh, which we've just finished last year, Um, and in fact, all of the data from this telescope, they're publicly released, so if you go to this website here, you can actually find, it's actually every bit of information that we've ever taken with this telescope. Um, So we invite citizen scientists to do whatever you'd like to do with these data. Um, But we've used these data to make the largest-scale maps of the universe, and... uh, skip the intro here but once we get going here now this is a real map of the universe so this, um, this is a fly through three dimensional space as it really is so each object you see here is a real galaxy um, positioned where it is in three dimensional space and again you have to do this accounting for our dark energy to make it all map out correctly um, but I like to show this map so in, in case you're ever abducted by aliens and you have to get back to Milky Way <laughs> So I make my kids memorize
2: this.
3: (laughs) My wife's in the audience here somewhere. She'll attest to this. Okay. Um, So then when we look at the expansion uh, history of the universe, so the Big Bang, again, it was here 13.7 billion years ago. We actually know that figure quite precisely now. So back when I was a student, that number was, well, it's somewhere between 8 and 20. Um, But now we know it to high precision. Uh, And this shows the measurements that we've made with this map that I just showed you, where we have a measurement of what the universe was doing 10 billion years ago, and at that time the universe was decelerating. So there was the Big Bang. Um, The universe Mm -hmm. exploded, if you will. Uh, Gravity is then attracting every atom in the universe to every other atom so the expansion slowing down but then at some point dark energy kicks in and the universe starts accelerating and so we have several data points of the universe accelerating. Um, now what's the explanation? So this is the fun part we don't know. So you can make the list of kind of general explanations of what it could be. So maybe this guy got it wrong um, so that's uh, one question you can test is, are the laws of gravity right? And from the data that we have as of today, well, it looks like the laws of gravity are actually okay. Um, So again, this is based on data from these maps. And so the evidence is actually ruling against modifying Einstein's gravity. And so what we're left with is adding some new force um, to the fundamental forces of physics. So what most of us learned in school were the four fundamental forces in nature. And what we think now is this is incomplete and there's some new force, some fifth force. And then the question is, what is this? What sort of field is causing this? Um, It could be constant in time and space or it could be what we call a dynamic field, meaning that it changes with time. Um, And this is where we are in our understanding today. Okay, so one of the things we're trying to do is get more data to try to narrow down the possibilities of what this is. And so this is a project we're working on right now. This is called the, uh, it's a mouthful, the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument. Uh, So this will be in Arizona. uh, And it's the the big telescope dome that you see there, where we're building an instrument that's about 20 times more powerful than that Sloan telescope. and I should say, this is an engineer's dream. So I don't know, I don't know what engineers everyone else is working with, because all, all the best ones, they seem to want to work on this project. So we have, look, we have 600 tons of moving weight, 200,000 meters of fiber optics. Uh, we've built or we're building this um, focal plane for the telescope that has uh, 5,000 little robots crawling around. It's really fun. And what we'll be doing with this is making a a much larger map than what we've made previously. So the um, map that we have today, we've mapped out sparsely about half a percent of the visible universe. So this is in the uh, however many years, 17 years that I've been doing this. Um, Then with this new telescope, we'll be mapping out. This makes it look like a little more than it is, but about 5% of the visible universe. Um, So it's a a much bigger fraction of the universe. Okay, then I want to end with um, uh, this map that we'll be making next, um, hopefully to understand the next uh, phase of dark energy. So it'll be a map of 30 million galaxies. So it's galaxies and distant quasars. Um, But uh, I just wanted to show this for the the kids in the audience so you can figure out how old you're going to be in 2061. So this is a map of Um, how large um, astronomical maps have been as a function of time. So this was uh, back when I was a student. We had maps of a few thousand galaxies. Now we're up at 2.5 million. This project we're building now will get up to 30 million. And it kind of follows this Moore's Law-like projection where if we're smart enough, clever enough, um, we should get to... 140 billion galaxies by 2061. So I invite someone in the audience to do that. (laughs) Okay, I'm done. Thank you,
1: David. Present contestant, no, presenter number one. Next up is Jaime Zhang. And she's going to answer the question, when I'm a scientist in 10 years, what will I be able to see with an electron microscope that you or I cannot see now? And again, this is important information you need to have, and I'm very serious about it. Jaime, please come out. Please welcome Jaime.
4: In nature, how does the caterpillar transform to a butterfly? we can make a guess based on the initial state and the end state.
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Our speculation can be terribly wrong. However, if we watch the dynamic processes directly, there is no ambiguities. In material science, they are full of processes that involve materials transform from one state to another. To understand pro- those problems, including the materials properties, it is important we study the materials transformations directly by direct observation. As a material scientist, I'm interested in the variety of materials and materials processes in applications for sustainable energy and clean environment. I study materials at the atomic level, scientists using telescopes to study the large matter, like stars, galaxies. I use a transmission electron microscope to study the smallest matter, the atoms. Transmission electron microscope is a very powerful tool. Even President Obama was amazed by the atoms that can be visualized using a transmission electron microscope. A transmission electron microscope can use the high-energy electron beam and focus the beam using a series of magnetic lenses in high vacuum for imaging as a comparison to a light microscope, the electron microscope has much better resolution to see small things, atoms, because the electron beam has very small wavelengths. In conventional imaging, using a transmission electron microscope, because of the high vacuum environment, we image materials by drying them out or freezing them. Then, to understand how materials transform from one state to another, we have to do the extrapolation, just like to make a guess on how does the caterpillar transform to a butterfly. Recently, I developed a liquid cell, as shown in this schematic. It can isolate the liquid from the high vacuum environment. So I can study samples, can study materials using the transmission electron microscope. Over the years, my students have made several versions of liquid cells. Here I'm going to show you, using the liquid cell, what we can see that was never before possible. This is a movie showing you the growth of small platinum crystal in liquids. You can see majority of these crystals developed into cubic shape. We can also have a closer look at one of these particles. We can see how it developed into a cubic shape. As it rotates, at certain angle, we can see the atoms line up. It's really amazing. <laughs> Thank <you. laughs> By direct observation, we found the 100 years old theory for crystal growth is not correct. We developed, we found, a new rule for the growth of these small particles. Using the liquid cell, we can also address questions in real world issues, such as batteries. We can make a small battery cell by putting electrodes inside a liquid cell. Then we can monitor the electrode-electrolyte interfaces during charge and discharge using a transmission electron microscope. Then we can see how does the battery work? Mostly, how does it fail? As we're all familiar with the problem, as your cell phone ages, the battery does not take a charge as well. Here is an example. We can image this formation of dendrites during charge and discharge. This damage the battery. If we understand them better, we can make better batteries. Using the liquid cell, we can also image biological materials in natural water environment. Well, in summary, using liquid cells, we no longer have to guess how materials transform. We can directly observe materials transformations using a transmission electron microscope. This is going to advance our understanding of materials, help us to solve world important problems. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jaime. I, was I right? This was important for you to know. OK. Next up, a question close to my heart. Is it possible to power all of San Francisco on ocean wave energy? We're gonna find out. Please welcome Marcus Lehman.
6: Thank you, and this is a very great question, and people have definitely figured out how to use them to have fun. But I'm here today to tell you, yeah, why and how we can use them to actually power our homes. And it's a very important question, because especially here for San Francisco and California, where the population is expected to double in the next 20 years, and this growing population needs a growing amount of um, energy, and we have to pay for this energy. Energy is not for free. And so every one of us has to pay the monetary price, but also the environmental price. So California still runs um, half on natural gas, and we're emitting around 350 million tons um, CO2 per year. And at the same time, California, we have this um, ambitious climate and renewable targets. So if we look at these two facts, we can come to the conclusion there's a a growing demand and an urgent demand to increase renewable energies. And yet this trend of uh, uh, growing demand for renewable energies, especially on coastlines, this is not a local trend, this is a global trend. And the U.S. is a great example where half of the population actually lives within 50 miles of the coastline. But to come back to our original question, we have to better understand the resource of waves. And I've been always fascinated by the ocean. I can sit on the beach for hours and stare at the waves. And I'm sure you experience the same while staring in a campfire. And I think we're human. We're so um, fascinated and hypnotized um, by both of these natural elements is because there is so much power in there. And to give you an idea how much power are in waves, um, one ship length of California coastline has as much power as an entire soccer field full of solar panels. And this high power density is the first big advantage of wave energy. The second big advantage is its... um, yeah, it's the less um, variability. So the sun only shines during the day. Um, wave, uh, wave power is available um, day and night time. And the third big advantage is its predictability. So if you want to increase renewable energy percentage in the grid, um, yeah, one of the major hurdles is the predictability. And so wave energy is actually predictable a week in, a, um, in advance And uh, yeah, compared to wind energy, which can change in the order of seconds. So to give you an idea how much power there's actually available, and in the US, um, we can see that's one of the four best spots in the world to um, harness ocean wave power. And recently, the Department of Energy found out that we could power yeah, half of the US just on wave energy. But still, there is not a technical solution there. And so sometimes when engineers struggle um, and yeah, we can't find a solution, then we actually step back and, and find inspiration in nature. And that was the case in, uh, um, also in, with our technology. And here we can see a very special place in the Gulf of Mexico. And you can see on the, on the left side, the um, big ground swells travel till the coastline, till they break and completely vanish. And on the right side, suddenly all the waves disappear. And this place has been known by fishermen and passed on, and it's called the mud hole. And there is a certain mud floor on, on this um, location in this mud hole. And as you can see, as the waves travel over this mud, Then the mud starts to vibrate, and then this vibration, similar to a shock absorber in a car, extracts all the energy. So a researcher here at Berkeley, um, Professor Alam, tried to explain this phenomena, and he created a mathematical model that uses a viscoelastic seabed that's hooked on a grid um, of springs and dampers. And then he had this great idea, yeah, why not using these dampers as generators and then actually produce power with it? And it's quite counterintuitive to have a device being on the bottom, but that was one of the major hurdles um, of the industry so far, that most of the devices on the surface, they just struggle with the high um, range of loads and safety factors needed and these slamming forces and storms coming in. So we saw this great potential of this technology uh, around two years ago. So we started building first proof-of-concept prototype. And there we want to give the credit to our uh, lab neighbor professor who borrowed the bike pump um, we used for this experiment. Um, and that wasn't working that well, but then we improved and built a first working model that could actually yeah, mimic the mud behavior. And with this device, we could absorb over 80% of the energy. But we didn't get a lot of energy out that we could actually use in a, in a mechanical form. So the last year, we were working hard on um, developing a system that's actually able to produce a significant amount of energy. And then finally, last summer, yeah, we further developed the system and reached over 40%. And that's actually our device working in a wave tank here at Berkeley. And you can see as the waves travel over the carpet, yeah, the carpet adopts the wave motion and then drives these pumps which are underneath. And so to give you an understanding of the mechanical principle behind it works like a hydraulic jack, where a, high, um, a, a large area and, and, and a low pressure um, gets converted into a high pressure on a small area. And the major challenge was um, actually to build a, a material that's able to yeah, um, mimic the mud behavior. And so we used the composite material out of natural rubber and uh, fiberglass, and this material worked pretty well. And then the second big challenge was really to find a, a generator that would come up with um, high enough power that we can use. And so we developed um, a very high flow-optimized, um, efficient, um, low-friction pump. And yeah, with this setup then and, and three um, generators in total, we could um, convert over 40% hydraulic power. And so since then, we improved and um, yeah, built a new generator system that sits on top and then um, with a way where we can actually control it. And here you can see um, in this short little clip, how effectively our system actually is able to extract the waves. So I replay it in a second, but, um, yeah, look at how much wave is coming in and then how much um, wave height we actually see after the device. The um, and, yeah, we had the fluorescent die in there because we did visual wave height measurement. And uh, it was on top of the, on top of the device. And so to better understand um, the physics behind, we used uh, computational fluid dynamics. Um, And yeah, with this, we could simulate the dynamic pressure um, to better understand the fluid structure interaction. And here we can see as the waves travel over the carpet, this orbital particle motions actually get split into half. And then we have two separate waves and the um, upper one gets deeper. And then because of this pressure difference between the upper and the lower one, similar to the pressure difference on an airplane wing, then we can actually use this um, excitation force to generate power. So let's imagine we yeah, upscale one of our units to a 30 by 30 feet unit. And then we place it somewhere south of Ocean Beach, where it's uh, yeah, not an area of recreational use. One, single of one unit of our system would be able to power 180 homes in San Francisco. And this is equivalent to yeah, thousand a thousand barrel oil per year. And to give you an idea how the system works on a, on a bigger scale, um, here we can see as the waves travel over, the, the carpet absorbs the waves, and then we generate high-pressure um, ambient salt water that can be brought on shore, and then runs a hydraulic motor and can also be used um, yeah, to drive a reverse osmosis chamber um, to create fresh water. And that's actually, especially for California, facing the droughts in the last couple of years, um, a great application to use a renewable source um, yeah, for desalination. And our system in general has three major advantages. The first one is the higher survivability. As we heard, yeah, the major drawbacks in the industry were the high slamming forces on the surface. So the fact that the system can work efficient, submerged, is yeah, the major first advantage. The second is um, the higher efficiency. Because we're based on this natural phenomena, and at the same time, there's a trend that we see in the wind energy industry, where the wind blades get bigger and bigger, And so, similar, our device has the capability to upscale because the power of the waste and the width. And the last advantage is, yeah, the visual impact. So, the fact that it's submerged, yeah, just comes with this major advantage. So, what's next? Um, We're very um, happy about our progress and excited about our next steps. We're working towards the first ocean pilot um, and at the same time optimizing the system for full-scale integration into the grid. And so we're happy to be supported um, by the Berkeley Labs um, that attracts yeah, some of the best engineers and scientists in the world. So on all aspects of the simulation, engineering, but then also the bigger questions, um, yeah, we find experts to talk to. And then we um, yeah, got integrated into a great new program called the Cyclotron Road um, since last year, and we get great um, support and mentorship there. So, now that we better understand the resource and the technology, we can come back to our original question and we can have a closer look at San Francisco. Here we can see uh, the, the average annual wave power is quite seasonal, but in, in average it has around 20 kilowatts um, per meter. So, again, it's 30 times higher than, than wind and solar. So, with a strip of, yeah, a single strip of 33 miles um, and a device like ours that works at 60% efficiency, yeah, we could power an entire San Francisco. So, yeah, because of the huge potential of the technology, we were, um, won the first prize of the Burke Resource and Energy Collaborative the last two years, and, yeah, we were awarded by MIT and Caltech Clean Energy Prize. And the National Geographic named us, yeah, one of the five striking concepts of Harness Wave Energy. And so we want to thank everyone at UC Berkeley, um, yeah, that supported our progress so far, and then Science TV for these great video shots because it's very hard to find yeah, funding for renewable energy and we did a crowdfunding campaign last year so we want to thank all our backers as well so to get back to our final question uh, to our initial question um, yeah our final answer is yes we can um, but it has to be in a mix of renewables so similar to a good farmer we have to have a healthy mix and use all locally available resources So please visit us at uh, CalWave.org or at Cyclotron Road, and then we hope to see you at our first installation in San Francisco in the next couple of years.
1: Thank you, Marcus. So uh, for some of you who have seen our eight big ideas, we have a timer up here for eight minutes. We didn't do that this time. We gave the scientists a little more time, but they worked very hard to make these shorter and digestible. So let's give a round of applause for them so far. I think they've done well. <laughs> and, and just a reminder, uh, if you're tempted to ask a question during the presentation, please don't do so. We do have a Q&A session where you can line up and ask questions appropriately. Thank you so much. OK, next, Laura Kipper is talking about climate change. Is it going to kill the forests in California? This, again, is something we need to know. Laura, please come on stage.
5: Is a pretty depressing question I got. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, luckily, climate <laughs> change. <laughs> 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 so, luckily, climate change uh, will not kill all the forests in California, but uh, we do expect it to cause quite a few changes um, as we move forward over the coming century and longer. So the most certain change for climate change in California is higher temperatures. And I'm sure you're all uh, familiar with pictures like this that show the increasing temperatures expected over the next 100 years or so. So this shows about a 5 degree Fahrenheit increase in Berkeley. And as you move inland into those redder areas, we're expecting larger temperature changes. The projections from global climate models for precipitation change are relatively small, and they're pretty uncertain. But what we do know is that with warmer temperatures and no increase in precipitation, we expect the summers to be drier. And this is important for plants that grow in your garden, that grow in our fields, and that grow in our forests. So over many years, decades, scientists have been returning to measure uh, individual plots of forest in California and other places in the western U.S. and have seen increases in mortality of trees. Over about a single generation, a human generation, we've seen a doubling in tree mortality uh, as a consequence of warming temperatures and this increased summer water stress. And what we've what we've Uh, been looking at here is background mortality. So this is just simply sort of the year-by-year turnover of trees in a forest that's been increasing. But at the same time, we also have seen that warming temperatures and increased drought stress also increase the rate or the extent to which uh, insect outbreaks like bark beetles, shown in this upper panel photo here, have killed patches of forest. And also, warming temperatures increase The frequency uh, and um, intensity of large wildfires. So while this all sounds pretty dire, uh, luckily the death of trees does not mean the end of forests. But it does mean that we can anticipate quite a few changes uh, moving forward. So one of the big one one of the answers, uh, I guess, to that original question uh, regarding whether all the forests will die is that many tree species will not grow where they grow today. This is a change that uh, we know to be with uh, a good amount of certainty. So the example I'm showing here is for a species called blue oak, which is widespread in California. It forms a bathtub ring around the Central Valley. And it's endemic to our state, meaning it grows nowhere else on Earth. When we uh, used some climate change scenarios to anticipate where the climate suitable for blue oak will be in the future, we see pretty dramatic shifts. In the light green colors, what I'm showing are areas where this habitat that's suitable for blue oak is eliminated in a future climate, warmer climate. And in the dark green areas is where I'm showing newly suitable habitat or habitat that remains suitable over the coming 100 years. And so what you can see is that there's a large amount of area that's been eliminated from the, cu- the current range of this species. And then there are areas higher in elevation and to the north in California that will be suitable in the future. So. We've made these kinds of predictions, myself and other scientists have put together these kinds of projections for many, many species, and they all paint the same picture, which is that species will need to relocate to stay within their climate zone. Another question that I've been pursuing uh, recently is trying to address this question of whether alpine tree line will move upslope with climate change. So the uppermost elevation limit of forests tends to be where the temperatures in the summertime are around 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And so we expect that with warming, trees will shift upslope to take advantage of the warmer temperatures displacing the wildflowers that are currently growing in these alpine areas in the summer. To learn more about whether these trees will establish in the alpine habitat, we're using heaters suspended from these poles here to actually physically warm seedlings that are sown in plots, in garden plots, in in the alpine tundra. And what we're finding is that water stress as I mentioned earlier, is even uh, a factor here for trees establishing at the coldest edge of their range. And so, uh, in fact, what we found is that while the warming, the heating that we're doing, uh, alleviates the stress that comes from cold and frost, it actually exacerbates the stress that comes from drier soils. And as a consequence, the seedlings in the warmed plots don't really do any better than the seedlings in the unwarmed plots in terms of their growth and survival. This is something that we weren't expecting, given our understanding of what controls this cold edge limit of forests. More importantly, however, though, this in- than this interplay between temperature and moisture is the fact that... To, uh, for seeds to arrive in an alpine environment like this and grow up into a forest takes hundreds of years. And so while mortality, a, a big mortality event, might kill off a patch of forest in as, as few as five or ten years, for example, as a consequence of an, a big insect outbreak or a large forest fire, it will take hundreds of years for that forest to regrow or for forest to establish up at higher elevations, like in this Uh, alpine site. So another effect of climate change on forests is that future forests will function differently than today's forests. And by function, what I mean is uh, the cycles of water, carbon, and nutrients in the forest uh, will will happen uh, somewhat differently. And we know less about Um, how these changes will take place, then we know about where species are likely to move to. So a reason we care a lot about how forests will function differently is because forests exchange vast amounts of carbon dioxide with the atmosphere each year. And in particular, tropical forests, like I'm showing here, take up about a third of the carbon pollution that we emit each year. And so understanding how uh, these forests will continue to take this carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is critically important for projections of future climate. But we have a really big challenge, and that is that tropical forests in particular are extremely diverse. You can have thousands of species in in, in any given forest in the tropics. And the models that we have today that model forest function on a global scale, really don't account for that diversity at all in fact and this is a problem because without accounting for that diversity we're not accounting for how different tree species might respond differently to climate enabling a forest to be more resilient than we might think it is and so one approach that scientists are beginning to use including at berkeley labs is to take advantage of what we know the characteristic, what we know about the characters or traits of species that enable them to survive or even thrive in different environments. So a trait might be how fast a tree grows. Some trees grow fast, while others grow slowly. Some trees require a lot of nutrients, while others can get by on infertile soils. These traits also have trade-offs. And so, for example, a fast-growing tree typically requires a lot of nutrients. So a large uh, new initiative led by scientists at Berkeley Lab is taking up this challenge of modeling the change in carbon functioning of tropical forests by using this trait-based or trait-enabled approach to predicting the future of climate change, excuse me, of carbon cycle change in these forests under climate change. So unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you tonight, um, really just an ongoing question and research area that we're pursuing So finally, I wanted to mention uh, the fact that I care a lot about how forests change, in part because forests affect how the climate will change. So as I mentioned previously, forests absorb and re-release vast amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere each year. And in fact, um, about a half, of the emissions of carbon dioxide from humans, carbon pollution um, is taken up by these forests each year. But at the same time, deforestation and forest degradation contributes about a third of our total carbon pollution. So these forests are very dynamically involved in the carbon cycle globally. And the amount of carbon that remains in the atmosphere is what influences and is continuing to influence our climate over time. So we're studying. Uh, how climate change will alter these forests, but also how these forests uh, affect the climate system by, excuse me, by uh, taking up carbon through photosynthesis, by storing it away for decades or centuries in wood and soils, and how and releasing it back to the atmosphere through the uh, decay of uh, leaves and roots and wood. Another way in which uh, forests affect the climate system is through their effects on energy and water budgets at the Earth's surface. So forests tend to be darker than other ecosystems. You can actually see this effect from an airplane window. And this means that they absorb more of the solar radiation coming in at the Earth's surface. And this tends to warm the local area uh, relative to in a a more uh, reflective ecosystem. In addition, forests have a lot of leaves and they have very deep roots. And this means that they can effectively move water from soils into the atmosphere. And this actually tends to cool the local climate because it's like uh, water evaporating off of your skin. It has a cooling effect on the temperature. So the ecosystem shifts or the forest shifts that I spoke about earlier actually have the potential to affect the climate locally where we live. We used a climate model to anticipate how a change in vegetation that comes from a change in climate contributes to local climate change that we would feel here in California. And what we found is that these shifting ecosystems can have a very large effect, uh, amplifying the original climate change or dampening it. In this image here, the darker colors show where that effect of the vegetation change is as large as the effect of the original climate change. So in the dark red colors, the climate change is doubled. And in the dark blue colors, it's completely eliminated. And so what you can see here, when we add it all up was that the climate change that comes from vegetation change can account for up to 70% of the total change. So this is what we call a feedback effect from changing vegetation and climate together. So forests play critical roles in the global carbon cycle. They provide habitat and resources for animals. They affect our local climate. And they also, of course, provide economic and cultural resources to all of us. So I think that it's uh, important to uh, continue to study the ways in which uh, climate change will affect these forests, and the way in which forests affect the climate in order to better predict the future of both. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Laura. Well, one of the uh, wonderful things about putting this program together was the great diversity of questions uh, that we were able to feature tonight. And the last question uh, for the last presentation is, what can a tabletop accelerator do that a big one like the LHC can't do? Our presenter, Wim Lehmans, is about to answer that question for you. Wim, please join. us.
7: Okay, so let me uh, tell you a little bit first about the accelerators. Uh, accelerators come in many sizes and energies. Um, very low energy accelerator is shown here. This is roughly 10 kilovolts. Some people call this a television. <laughs> if you go to the dentist's office and you get a de- an X-ray taken of your teeth, you actually sit in front of a little accelerator that puts out something on the order of a few tens of kilovolts to take a nice picture of your, of your smile as you're sitting in a chair being tortured by your dentist. (laughs) And then at the lower energy still, you have these devices here. And they're used for vulcanizing our tires, for making radioisotopes, for important applications to society. In the lower part of the screen here, I will show you a couple accelerators that are more discovery tools. Here at Berkeley, we have one of the best In the world, uh, X-ray sources based on an an accelerator beam goes around in a circle. And as it goes around in a circle, it emits light. At SLAC, back in the 60s, they built an accelerator which was two miles long. If you drive on 280, you drive actually over the accelerator. And so this was two miles long to reach 50 GV in our language or 50 billion volt. And then at CERN, of course, there is the largest machine to date, 27 kilometers circumference, where they're colliding protons on each other to discover new uh, particles like the, like the Higgs boson and really do forefront discovery science in particle physics. And so when you think about the story here, Berkeley was founded, Berkeley Lab was founded by Ernest Orlando Lawrence, and he's holding the first cyclotron in his hand. And about 80-some years later, people are building machines that are the size of a small country, at least a small European country, (laughs) with a stored energy in... This is megajoule, 300 megajoule. And to, to give you a sense of what that means, if you're sitting on the TGV to go to CERN, at 150 kilometers an hour, that represents 360 megajoule. If you're... I don't know if anyone in the audience ever has been on an aircraft carrier. I I certainly haven't. But if these things go at 12 knots, it's 360 megajoules. So it gives you a sense of what the community has done to go from a handheld device to this gigantic machine with which people discover new things. So we asked ourselves the question, can we make them smaller again? And so if you think about what happened in computers, computers shrunk. And if we would be still in this era here of the supercomputer from 1954, I would have to have a gigantic pocket to hold my iPhone in, right? (laughs) Instead, we're now carrying around computers that are far, far more powerful. So the question that we look at is, can the same be done with particle accelerators? So how do we go about thinking this through? So increasing the power... Inside a convention accelerator, you could say, well, look, the particles get accelerated by electric fields. Just crank up the electric field to reach higher power uh, or higher energy electron beams. Well, eventually, it will lead to sparks in your accelerator. And I want to, I know my wife is in the audience, I want to tell her if the microwave oven doesn't work in the next few days, it had nothing to do with the making of this movie. (laughs) So here is a microwave oven, and you put some Aluminum foil in it, and this is what happens. <laughs> so it's pure coincidence, honey. If, that, if ours doesn't work anymore. So to think about accelerators in a different way, let's think about a favorite pastime for some people: surfing behind a boat. So here you have a brave guy surfing behind his boat. Here, so this boat is exciting a wave on the water, and he's actually riding that wave. So what we are working on is essentially the equivalent, but we replace, here you see again the same picture, you have your boat traveling over the water, exciting this wave, and this guy is surfing on it. So what we do is we think of our surfers as electrons. Our boat is actually a laser pulse. And the liquid, the equivalent of the liquid that the laser pulse has to go through is called a plasma. And this is not the plasma that runs through your body. This is a very different plasma. This is an ionized gas. This is electrons and ions freely streaming around. And what you're doing is when you send in this intense laser pulse, and I mean intense, it's of the order of in my units, 10 to the 18 watts per square centimeter. So it's enormously intense. If you send that into this liquid of electrons and ions, the electrons get pushed out of the way by like a snow plow, and the ions are left unshielded. Now the ions pull the electrons back And what you've set up is a clump of negative charge and a clump of positive charge. It's like a traveling battery behind the laser pulse. And the fields that you excite in here are of the order of 10 to 100 billion volts per meter. So this is already broken down basically. You don't have to do your microwave thing to break this thing down. It is an ionized gas. It is per definition already ionized. All you're doing is you're moving charges around, and you're creating a wave to, to, to allow this, to, these electrons to surf on. Here are the electrons. This is the laser pulse. This is a simulation on our supercomputer. And behind the laser pulse, you see this wave. And the color change indicates the energy gain of these electrons. So we can actually simulate this. And of course, we did this in the laboratory as well. I know this movie went by really fast. But red here is 10 billion volt, and this is of the order of 6 billion volt. And this is done in a distance of about 20 centimeters. In fact, I never leave home without my accelerator. <laughs> here it is, If in case I have to re-vulcanize my tires, create some <laughs> radioisotopes, call me or find me after the show to, um, to discuss. This offers to be made. So... Now, to do this correctly, you have to have some control because you have this wave. How do you get your surfers onto this wave? And that's the tricky part. So if you look at these guys here, they're beautifully riding this wave. We're exciting it. And we call these the injected electrons. <laughs> and then you have this unlucky fellow here. <laughs> He's injected out of phase. He ain't making it today. So. We use these guys, and that takes really good control of all of these laser properties and plasma properties, etc. So it takes a lot of work. We have the world's highest repetition rate, highest peak power laser here on the hill. This is a laser that produces about a million billion watts but in a tiny, tiny fraction of a second. In fact, it produces it only for about 50 femtoseconds. So that's a zero and then another 14 zeros and then a five. So otherwise you would see the lights dim every time we fire everywhere in the Bay Area. That obviously doesn't happen because we store the energy and then we release the energy and we do all of these gymnastics on the laser pulse. The other thing we had to invent was with our help from colleagues at Oxford University is this structure, like the one I have in my pocket here. This is actually a hydrogen plasma. This is a real picture of the real device, the hydrogen plasma. And you can see the plume flowing out here. This is life action. Laser pulse gets coupled in. And if you do things right, you get these ultra high energy electron beams. And we have right now the world record at Berkeley Lab 4.25 billion volt in 9 centimeters. So this is clearly a tabletop part. The laser, I grant you, that's not quite tabletop. But if you think about what we're doing is if I would try to do the same with conventional technology to reach 10 billion volt, I would need at least five football fields. To do what we did, we built this lab. This is the laser here. This is the target chamber. And this is our friend. It fits in there nicely. And to put this on scale compared to the football fields, that's what it looks like. So of course, when you think about these discovery machines, you also try to make sure that when you talk to your neighbor, you can actually tell your neighbor you're doing something useful. right? <laughs> so I was at an evening giving a lecture in San Jose, and they asked me, have you ever thought about putting an accelerator inside the body? And the reason you would want to do this is, if if you're so unlucky to have cancer, where they need to put radioisotopes in your body to treat the tumor, what happens is, if you look at the prostate here, you put your little, you have your tumor here, and you implant radioisotopes, you'll irradiate not just the prostate, but you'll irradiate a broader bulk of the tissue that's all surrounding it. So what they asked me to do is, can you think of a way to build an accelerator that actually would go into the body, produce these electrons, produce the radioisotopes right there in situ, you pull your accelerator out and you're done. So we, we first thought, I must be honest, I first thought that was a little crazy, but even for me, but so we decided to think about it. And I have a brilliant post and a, and a wonderful student as well. And so we decided, let's think about a fiber optic, a special fiber optic that can deliver laser power onto a special little tip here where the tip contains gas that you deliver in through this fiber. And you make sure that your gas has a very sharp threshold. Think now about waves on the ocean. If you're sitting at the beach and you have a rock and the wave comes over, the wave is going to break over that rock. When the water breaks, that's when the electrons get released and they actually can produce a little electron beam. So our dream is to build this thing. And this is meant to be a finger. I know this is a little bit confusing, but the rice right grain right there, that would be the size of the accelerator. Right now, we have done the reverse of what people do that build airplanes. When you build an airplane, you start with a model, and then you go to the big scale. We're a little doing the reverse here, because I don't think anyone wants to put our prototype in their body. <laughs> so this is scaled version so that you would see it. No, I'm kidding. We need to make it smaller, obviously. But this allows us to figure out how do you make a profile like this? And so this is really fun work to do because this would be an incredible feat of sort of engineering physics. And it really is a story of science. You start with a very lofty goal with a moonshot, and then you come to something that may be actually be very practical. So I like to end here with this same picture as I showed in the beginning. But this time, with a provocative quote that I like to stir things up when I'm talking to my funding agencies or any, anybody else, those that say it cannot be done should not interrupt those that are doing it from George Bernard Shaw. <laughs> thank you.
1: Well, thank you, I've had a round of applause for all of our five science presenters. So, David, what's the most frequent question people ask you about dark energy while we're waiting?
3: Uh, See, every question I get's hard. Um, That shouldn't be a hard one. (laughs) The most frequent question. Um, Well, I guess I often get get the question of what is it. Yeah. And that's both a hard question and an easy question. It's an easy question because we have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the short answer. And then I can give you a longer answer.
1: So, does someone ask you, is this the Scientist Full Employment Act to look at dark energy at the end of your career?
3: Right. Well, it's. Uh, how much time do we have here? No,
1: it's okay. We, we're waiting. We're, we're doing some hand counting of the ballots so we, to add to the list. So, we have, okay. we have a second.
3: Okay. Well, I can talk for a couple minutes then. Okay. So, uh, we're pretty much in the very early days of dark energy where it's been discovered. We have no idea what it is. We have. Um, basically one theory per day in the literature. So you could ask me about (laughs) your favorite theory that you've seen and odds are I haven't read it just because there are so many. Um, but I kind of liken it to our understanding of dark energy today. It's where our understanding of general relativity was in 1704, which was, (laughs) well, that date means something. So that was 17 years after Newton published his laws of gravity. Um, and they fit almost everything except for one little piece, which was uh, the orbit of Mercury. Um, And so that was a puzzle that lasted for actually about 200 years, more than 200 years until Einstein explained it. And so for dark energy, you know, maybe it's like 1704. We have this one little puzzle of the geometry of the universe not being quite right. And we're starting to pick away at it and Maybe we'll figure it out next year, or maybe we'll figure it out in twenty-two, thirty-four.
1: Yeah. Okay, let's start with this gentleman right here to my left. How do you protect something underwater from seawater, from the
5: corrosive effect of salt?
1: Marcus, that's for you, yes. <laughs>
6: it's definitely not for me. <laughs> so that's a very good question, um, and we're happy that the oil industry, um, offshore oil and gas...
1: Yes, it was about the corrosive nature of salt. How exactly. do you protect against that?
6: Yeah. So um, yeah, we talked to actually the the CTO from the former CTO from the Navy, and he said. Um, yeah, to tackle the corrosion problem is um, answered by the n- number of coating layers you use on your in uh, grade steel.
0: The uh, the
2: standard candle, as I understand, works by. Comparing the spectrum of the supernova that's really far away to the brightness, um, how, how do you know that the uh, the the spectrum hasn't changed um, because it's going through that um, expanding space time? I mean, w- all you really know is that it's accelerating. I mean, how do you it, it, where where it, it, is it about the the darkness of it, with right? No, so, to the
3: yep. So I think I have the question here. So the question is: How, okay. how do we know from these supernovae that it's right that we're n- interpreting it correctly here? And the first thing I should tell you is: I think I was the last person in astronomy or physics to believe it. Um, so when the history books write this as a discovery in 1998, when did I believe it? 2004, maybe. Um, And the reason is there are actually lots of possible explanations for this. And so one of them actually is the same explanation that they tried to use for um, Newton's laws not being right, which was, well, maybe there's some dust in the solar system and that's slowing down the motion of Mercury and that could explain what was happening to its orbit. So with these supernovae being faint, one of the possible explanations was, well, maybe there's some dust between us and these supernovae and that makes them look a little bit different. There are other possible explanations, but what we have had since then are completely independent measures um, that agree precisely with these supernova measures. Um, So what I was showing with these galaxy maps, uh, there, all we're doing, we're making this three-dimensional map, and the third dimension, what we're actually making is we're making a map where there are two dimensions in angle. Then there's a third dimension where we measure what's called the redshift, which is the recession velocity of a galaxy. And we have to convert that to a physical distance. And there's only one way to do that conversion where you get a geometry that makes sense. Um, And so it it turns out we actually have three or four methods now that agree precisely with that supernova measurement. Could we
1: take uh, the question upstairs, please?
3: I had a question on the, the wave technology. Um, so I know there are lots of organisms that depend on the surf and the uh, interaction of waves at the shoreline I noticed that your uh, mechan- mechanism uh, reduces the amount of waves that, that arrive at the shoreline I'm curious if later in, the, in this uh, research you plan to use uh, marine biologists and, and people like that to understand the impact there
6: yeah, um, we're actually um, in touch with several marine biologists. There's a great professor, Mimi Cole, from Berkeley, and then also the Bodega Bay Marine Laboratory. And so it depends on how, how much, like, what size of unit um, you use. And, of course, if you, if you would um, potentially absorb the entire amount of energy, then you would pretty much turn the natural habitat from a splash zone into a harbor zone, similar to the bay, uh, to, to bay, bay habitat. But in our case, I think um, this will not be the major problem because the energy density is so high that we will never extract um, such a high amount. So there will be always waves coming in.
1: Uh, Next question here. I took
2: a course in electron microscopy about 30 years ago. And um, I actually hated it. Because it always um back then you were always it seemed to me anyway that you're always really looking at an artifact uh so i f- I found your talk really uh really interesting because uh, and, well speaking of artifacts,
7: um, how do you know that the high energy elec- the high energy created by the uh, electron beam passing through the liquid and and the uh, object that you're studying isn't influencing? Um, the um, the uh, phenomenon that you're observing.
4: That's a great question. So we don't know. We assess each system. One way to do it is we control the electron beam dosage. If we look at the reaction, is dose dependent? It is affected by the electron beam. But if the reaction is not. Those dependent in that case the electron beam is not driving the reaction there are many other ways um, for example we can look at the material look at the materials transformations using the electron microscope then we can use other methods for example x-ray or other method to just to conform what we observed is true so that is a very great question we take Uh, very careful uh, measurement to a lot of control experiments.
1: Thanks for your question.
4: How much would the research and development for the for that uh, grain of rice size particle accelerator cost approximately?
1: (laughs) Finally a question for Wim. Yay. (laughs) Well, how much money do you have? might be
7: surprised. If there's any donors in the room, please see me after the show. Um, Well, right now, of course, for the big devices, uh, the discovery machines, the hope is that our technology would reduce the cost by at least an order of magnitude. So they would still be very expensive machines of the order of a billion dollars to build them. Uh, We are working right now on really the base technology, making sure that we can make all the surfers behave properly and inject them nicely uh, we're also working on experiments where we take one module produce beam and then couple that beam into a second module because that's after all what they do in conventional accelerators they take the beam and keep on accelerating it structure after structure the problem is it's two miles or more and that's what we try to to solve so that's where the and D is the laser technology itself also has to really undergo revolutionary change, I think, because if the, la- the lasers that we use right now, uh, they consume a lot of, of energy because they're done in a very inefficient way. But when you think about your laser pointer, when you think about the fact that every car in, in the world right now is being welded, not electrically, but by lasers, And the reason is they figured out that if you build fiber-based lasers and you do diode pumping, you can get exceptionally efficient, very, very high average power systems. So we're hoping that that technology that's now building our Toyotas and our, our whatever, Hondas and Mercedes and so on, that that technology will also translate into lasers that will be useful for particle acceleration. So it's still a ways off for production machines. But
0: uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. Thanks, you're a great question. Yes. Hi. Uh, I have somewhat of a general question. And uh, I'm a big believer in uh, the fact that, you know, in 20 years or so, uh, uh, we will have, you know, electron microscopes that are advanced enough that we see what's going on. And I'm a big believer that uh, we will have the tabletop particle accelerators where uh, we get to fuse our own particles and experiment around. So something that I find very interesting is uh, my question is um, how do we uh, how do we you know how can we responsibly and safely uh, let you know the, the you know the, the general public use these uh, these new technologies? How do we ensure that we're using them safely and responsible way? Because a parallel that I see today is, uh, for example, three D printing, where what used to take uh, a whole factory. Uh, to manufacture uh, parts have now shrunk to a point where you can print uh, plastic parts at home, uh, manufacture your own, uh, your own uh, parts, components um, so we're miniaturizing all of these technologies and uh, you know, I'm a big believer that it's, it's happening at a, at, a, at a fast enough clip where you know, the general public can, can really easily have access to all these great technologies so okay, I think we? we're going to have Wim answer yeah. that one go for it Wim
7: well, should there be an accelerator in everybody's pocket? That's what you're asking me, sort of. <laughs> um, I, the technology that we're working on is, is, is still requires uh, really skilled people to operate the devices. Um, my hope and my dream is that the, this fiber optic-based accelerator would would go into hospitals, would go into, into treatment places, but they would still be handled by people that actually know what they're doing. Um, there is a lot of power in these devices, and it is certainly dangerous technology if you don't control it. But at the same time, I think it's, it's technology that will en- enable so many things uh, that are very important to society. That f- thinking through what are the limits to the technology and, and how should it be made available, etc., is certainly an important question. But you always have to have sort of the, the benefits against the. Uh, the, the bad part of technology.
1: So I want to ask one of Lara before we close, which is, what is the fate of the coastal redwoods? Can you tell at this point?
5: The fate of coastal redwoods? Mm-hmm. Fate? Mm-hmm. Um, no, <laughs> I can't tell you. Uh, you know, redwoods are a really interesting case because they've been around for thousands of years. They're a really ancient lineage, and uh, they've managed to hang on. Uh, through quite a lot of uh, variations in climate, and um, in California where they are today, the coastal redwoods sort of hug the coast for a reason, and that is that uh, they're very sensitive to water loss. So we can keep them alive in the Central Valley um, pretty well by watering them constantly, but the second you turn off the irrigation, they're they're toast. Uh, and so they really like that cool coastal climate. One of the really interesting challenges of predicting the future of Coast Redwoods, sorry to make a short question, a long answer, uh, is that one of the things we don't know about climate change is whether um, that fog in off the coast of California is going to be intensified or weakened, and so if it's intensified, actually, the Coast Redwoods are in pretty good shape, but if it's weakened, um, they're their range is is likely to shift along with uh, all of the other species. So we're we're working on that. Uh, We do see that where it's hot in the historical record over much of California, we tend to have less fog on the coast in a a particular year. Um, But uh, whether that's a a good projection for climate change into the future, uh, uh, 30 or 40 or 100 years uh, actually still remains to be seen getting climate models down to that fine resolution that they can simulate fog will be a real advance for us.
1: Thank you. Okay, well, it's a sorry, sorry note, but we're going to close the evening now. Uh, thank you, Berkeley Lab scientists. Thank you, audience, for your participation and for coming out. We appreciate it, and please come to see us in Oakland on April twenty-nine. Thank you again.